This is Tess. And this is Travis. And you're listening to Disorder in the Court. This week, I'm going to be talking about a case that a lot of people who learned of this podcast from me might be familiar with. I don't, again, don't want to give too much away. I literally don't know anything about the case he's doing this week, so this is going to be a fun time. This is what I'll say. We're going to be talking about the destruction of Rhode Island's economy by way of video games. What? You'll see. All right. I'm so excited. First, I'm going to talk about America's favorite pastime, though. Gymnastics. I wish. I know. But no, I'm going to be I'm going to be telling you about baseball. Okay, so I want to start by having you imagine that you're at a nice baseball game with your friends or your family. Mm, so boring. <laughs> it's really chill. The tickets are cheap. You can bring your own food in. Like, I'm a huge proponent of baseball games. I'm not going to lie to you. Like minor league baseball games, though. No, major league. The Orioles, you can bring your own food in. I've never heard of that. Oh, it's... Okay, well, maybe that's just the Orioles, yeah. but the Orioles, you can definitely bring your own food in. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I haven't heard of that before, yeah. so... Well, you need to attend more baseball games. Absolutely not. Okay, so, I mean, at least for me, all around a good time, unless it's way too hot, sometimes it is, maybe you even bring your glove with you in the hopes that you catch a foul ball that popped up into the crowd. So what happens, though, when you take your eyes off the game for a minute? A right. little bit of a boring game at times. It's a little bit slow at times. And so maybe you take your eyes off the game, you look down at your phone, you look around the crowd, the scoreboard. What happens to some people when they do that is they get hit with a foul ball. There are pretty gruesome cases, actually, of, of children going to baseball games and getting hit with an errant bat or a ball. Yeah. And it's like there's a whole debate about whether or not they should put up extra nets and stuff around it but i have a feeling that it's not going to be as straightforward as you're making it out to be no not quite so i don't think i've ever been close to a foul ball at a regular like major league or minor league game but most certainly at little league games too like you're gonna get popped in the kneecap with a foul ball like sitting on the edge then of the a field. kneecap yeah like because okay i feel like <laughs> have to cut this out i feel like in little league games like you're sitting in your little lawn chair like along the foul line and the kids like don't really know how to hit so they just hit like a low one like straight off to the side all the time and you're gonna catch somebody in the kneecap it's so specific yeah anyways as you kind of alluded to and through statistics there's apparently a significant risk of being hit by a foul ball at a baseball game yeah um, one review done by Bloomberg actually stated that there were almost 2,000 baseball fans hit per year by foul balls in the stands. 2,000? Yeah. Yikes. Uh, so the number was like 1,700, but it was close to 2,000. That's a lot. Still. It was alarming. Um, and like you also said earlier, some of these injuries are pretty bad. People have broken jaws, damage to their eyes, head injuries. And what you had mentioned in 2017, a toddler was hit in the face and was in critical condition for a while. Yeah, I remember that. There was yeah. a lot of debate about why that happened, yeah. how it should have been prevented. I don't think anything ever actually came of it, um, but I remember it being particularly hard to, to listen to the, the facts as they were described. Yeah, it was it was really brutal. And there's even a case, 
it was the first one in like 50 years or something like that. But in 2018, a woman died from being hit by a foul ball at a Dodgers game. And then my next thought, and probably most of your next thought is, well, okay, are they going to sue the stadium? Are they going to sue the the baseball team? Not that easy. Yeah, we'll see. It's really not that easy. So that's where, sadly, I have to introduce you to the baseball rule, which is a specific rule, like often called by courts, the baseball rule, which it's not in every jurisdiction, but it is in most jurisdictions. So we learn about it in law school and you learn about a lot of rules like this. There's a minority rule and a majority rule Mm -hmm. and following the baseball rule is the majority of jurisdictions. Basically, the baseball rule states that a spectator of a sport cannot recover for the ordinary risks inherent to a spectator of that sport. And generally, with some fact-based exceptions, being hit by a foul ball at a baseball game is a known ordinary risk inherent to watching a baseball game in person. And the spectator then assumes that risk by being present at the game pretty well-known trope getting right. hit with a foul ball right so it's not as if people are going in there not expecting obviously they're not expecting to get hit by one that's not something that occurs too frequently 1700 people in the grand scheme of baseball attendees is not a lot but the fact that it has happened before and has happened a decent amount of times means that people going there should at least expect it to potentially happen Right. And that's kind of basically what they said. I think one court described it as like it's ordinary knowledge. It's not something that like you have to know baseball or be into baseball. Like you're just aware that foul balls are a thing that happened in baseball. Ordinary, Especially if you're going to go to one. Yeah. And so also with this, then I want to talk a little bit about the nets. Right. So the nets are another big thing of contention when people are talking about this rule and, um, Basically, it's true that most stadiums have the nets, and in a lot of jurisdictions, the stadium needs to have a reasonable amount of nets, whether that's legislated or um, done through judicial means. Mm -hmm. But they don't have to tell you explicitly that if you sit where there's not a net, you have a risk. They just have to make a netted area kind of available generally. So as long as their netted area is adequate... Anywhere in the stadium, you can't really sue and recover because you assume the risk because you weren't sitting in that area. One of the exceptions that does exist, though, for when the baseball rule doesn't apply is if the team or the stadium has done something to increase that risk. So I found it kind of amusing that there was a case where a seven-foot-tall fuzzy dinosaur named Tremor distracts you by hitting you with his long tail um, so you can't pay attention where the balls are flying that you can recover because they made your risk worse. Did someone get hit in that situation? Yes. Yikes. Yeah. So I bet you're wondering at about this point, where's the wacky case? We're just talking about baseball for no reason. This is a rule. This is a rule. Well, now I'm going to tell you about the wacky case. We're going to talk about Coomer versus the Kansas City Royals. Okay. John Coomer was attending a Royals baseball game with his dad, as they often did. He was a regular fan. He was there all the time. It had rained earlier in the day, so there weren't a lot of people there, but it was a nice day for a game. Uh, So they were able to hop seats to some closer ones from their original seats, and those seats were just a couple rows behind the visitor's dugout. Hmm. 
you know at baseball games how they do like funny contests and races and stuff in the middle of them mm-hmm. toss out t-shirts that kind of thing mascots running around mascots bases, running yeah. around i was literally gonna say shout out to the pittsburgh pirates for having pierogi races at theirs it's the best thing ever i've seen one i don't know what team it was i've seen one where presidents were in like mascot form <laughs> and there was like five different presidents running along the uh, the track for a race and it was like bill clinton beating out like nixon in a race and then like obama stopped to beat up like fdr or something it was very funny was it the nationals it might have been yeah okay that would make sense to me i think the o's oh, have yeah, i crabs. guess that would make sense yeah yeah but yeah so i'm this is a the one thing that i'm positive is a universal experience is watching those weird games so, the Kansas City Royal Stadium, their mascot is named Slugger. And I would like to note that his name is spelled with three R's at the end. Oh, no. He's a lion, but instead of having a mane, he has a crown. Like, that is his head. Like, he's not wearing a crown. He is a crown for the royals. And how is he a lion? Well, he has a lion face. What on earth is going on? It's a little bit nuts, and it makes him look a little creepy. I'm not going to lie to you. The other thing I realized as you're saying this, it's not slugger. It's slugger, like a lion. Yes. Anyways, so he's their mascot, and in some of the off times of the game, he goes up and he stands on the visitor's dugout and performs their tradition of throwing and or shooting hot dogs out of a gun into the crowd so you get a free hot dog apparently they've been doing this since 2000 i think so they're really into this what what year is this case you never mentioned oh sorry um it is from 2011 he originally got hit and it finished in 2014 so it was 11 year tradition then i mean that's not small yeah it's not insignificant and also this guy had been going for a long time so like he, like, knew this tradition, too. It he, was a, he was aware of yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. He th- throws them to the fans that are close, and he shoots them out of the gun to the people who are far away, like a t-shirt cannon, but a hot dog cannon. Insane to me. It is a little I bit st- insane. I still honestly can't even picture that in my head. Would, like, they, like, plastic wrapped and then put into the gun where they well, just, like... Well, I think like, they're just foiled. Ass- yeah. Yeah, that's insane Just to in me. there, like, you know, like, the vendor from a sports game foil. Weird. Yeah. So he's doing this and he's throwing some just with his arm and he turns around and throws one behind his back just as Mr. Coomer looked away to the scoreboard. And before he knew anything else that was happening, he got clonked in the face with a hot dog. Honestly, hearing all this, I'm surprised this is the only time this has happened because <laughs> that sounds nuts. I so I can't, I don't know that this is the only time that happened. This is certainly the only famous time that yeah, it happened. Okay, that's fair. So that's for sure. He didn't notice anything seriously wrong right away. He was like, "Ouch, eyeball hurts." Got it hit in the face with oh, a hot hit dog. Hit him in the eye. Yeah, like it got him in like a good right in the eyeball. What on earth? Yeah. So. But he stayed the rest of the game, and he came back the next night and watched a baseball game, too, because he loves baseball. Too much. Yeah. It'll be the death of him, almost literally. Yeah. Eventually, though, he notices that he isn't seeing right, and his eye is not 
working properly, he goes to see a doctor. The doctor diagnoses him with a detached retina and a traumatic cataract. That is so intense. It is so intense. So he underwent surgery for this, like an expensive surgery to repair his retina and remove the cataract. The the fact that a hot dog did that to begin with is nuts to me. Worse, the fact that he didn't know that it was a problem until like several days later. A detached retina is serious. Right. He was like, oh, I was seeing funny. So I went to the doctor. I was like, it didn't hurt. I, I don't know. That's an internal eye injury. I would suspect that it would be causing not only actual topical pain on the eye, but like severe headaches. You can't see anything. How do you not notice that you can't see correctly? I don't know. I take my glasses off and it's like I'm in a completely different world and I have both my retinas attached. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I, this might, it might come up a little bit later, I think, is it'll be part of why this case ends the way that it does. Okay. But, um, so naturally he's, he tries to sue to recover and they know that the odds are stacked against them because of the baseball rule. That's okay. established in this jurisdiction. They know that it's going to be asserted. The lawyer is aware yeah. of that legal standard. Okay. Yeah. They assert that the Royals and their employee, Slugger, were negligent and caused this injury. And as they suspected, the Royals defended asserting assumption of the risk. Sure. The baseball rule. Which we talked about of either last episode or a few episodes ago. We did. I think it might have been my case that we talked about yeah, it in, I too. Yeah, so. But, um, but yes. Yeah, so or donkey ball. Or donkey ball, too. Yeah. Okay. And they also asserted comparative negligence, which, again, not going to go into. He argued against assumption of risk, stating that it's not applicable here because you only assume the risk that's inherent to the nature of the activity. And being hit with a flying hot dog is not inherent to the nature of watching a baseball game. It's completely different from a foul ball. And so they went to trial, and the trial judge said that the question of whether flying hot dogs were inherent to the nature of baseball was a question for the jury and submitted it as an instruction to them, which is like something that they should think about while they're deliberating and decide on. That in, in itself is wild to me that a judge yeah. is asking the jury to decide what is or isn't inherent to baseball. Like, I know that it's necessary to this case altogether, but that's just a crazy question to give to a, a, any person. Basically saying... You 12 people decide what baseball is. So you jump the gun on that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Uh, that's what they'll appeal on. Right. So a quick backup for one second. The jury found in this first trial that it was 100% the fault of Coomer and no fault of the Royals. So Coomer could not recover anything. What? Yeah. How was that a thing? I don't know. How on earth would anyone sit there and say that someone throwing something at your eyeball is one, 100% your fault. It's really bizarre. I If you wanted to say something like, Coomer skipped seats, like he jumped to the front, so he's 5% at fault here, or 10%, or even higher than that, I understand, because he wasn't supposed to be in that section, or he wasn't paying full attention, or he turned directly at the... Whatever. 100% the fault of the victim? It doesn't make any sense. No. And, I mean, obviously, Coomer felt the same way, too, and I have no idea what that jury was thinking. But, luckily, Coomer appeals, arguing that whether getting hit with a flying hot dog... Hot dog? Not yeah, a baseball. Yeah, is an inherent risk to baseball. It's 
a matter of law to be decided by the judge, not by the jury, because it's not a matter of fact. Right. The appeals court agrees with him. Ding. Good. And they go on to say that being hit in the face with a hot dog is not an inherent risk to watching baseball and that it should have been decided by a judge. They kind of reason that it's just a custom slash experience sort of thing at that stadium and has nothing to do with the actual structure of the game of baseball or the essential habits that you need to play baseball. Like, this is just this stadium decided this is a fun thing it's going to do. It has nothing to do with the actual baseball. Yeah, and maybe that's where I'm getting hung up on the legal arguments for the defense here because if I was them, Mm -hmm. I'm not. Clearly, I'm not even a real lawyer. (laughs) But if I were, I would have said not assumption of the risk because of baseball. I would have tried to argue assumption of the risk because this person's been coming here for however long, is completely familiar with the customs and practices, has seen the mascot do this, has lived through it unharmed before, and still decided to come. So that, I mean, to me, that's where theoretically assumption of the risk may come in. Not arguing that hot dogs being thrown is a baseball thing. That makes very little sense to me. Yeah. And so in the second trial, that is kind of what they argue. They say that the Royals are not protected from liability on the baseball rule or the assumption of risk rule. And the case is remanded back to the trial court Mm -hmm. for a proceeding where the jury will do their fact-finding job and decide whether the Royals or the mascot were negligent and if... Coomer can recover for his injuries because of their negligence. Okay. In this retrial, the jury found that neither the Royals nor Coomer were liable for his injuries. Then who? Wish I could tell you. Are you serious? They didn't even decide that? Nope. Just no no recovery. No one was liable. What? Yeah. I mean, don't ask me to ever be on trial in Kansas with a jury. I'll choose a judge any day. Especially with baseball on the line, apparently. Uh, how did they go from victim, it's 100% your fault, to victim, you're 0% at fault, but also the person who did this to you is also 0% at fault? Where does the fault come in? I don't know. Like, I looked this up, like, three times. I was trying to find different sources because everyone had basically, like, copy-pasted the same, right. like, Associated Press release yeah. thing. And... I literally could not find any other information other than that he didn't recover anything because they found neither him nor the Royals liable. I don't buy I I don't get it at all. It makes no sense. And this is where I was saying what you were saying earlier comes in. I think that maybe this jury just kind of thinks in that baseball rule, like, well, sure. this was just a freak accident and like you're at the baseball game with all of this going on. Like, yeah. It just happened. Right. And did like a jury nullification thing. Like, we don't think... It applies. It applies. Yeah. Which is crazy to me. If if you can't recover for something like this, then I don't know what you can recover for. Uh, let me tell you from my research, you cannot, basically. Yeah. The only times that people have recovered is like if they're sitting in the netted zone and the netting was faulty. So they didn't have a proper protective zone. Even then... The baseball team or the organization that owns it is going to try to pawn off liability onto the manufacturer oh, of the net. Absolutely. Who still not hold themselves fully liable, yeah. if liable at all. Yeah. And I think, too, if you are, I think there's a case if you're walking near a baseball stadium, but you're not in the stadium, mm-hmm. you can't have waived that. 
and assume the risk. Okay. So if you get hit by a ball there, you could sue. Like by a home run or something. And there's a or lot if it's of an outdoor stadium. Right. Exactly. And there's a lot of weird litigation about when you are inside the stadium. But not in the stands. But not in the stands. Like if you're getting food and stuff like that. I think from my research, there are cases that come out both ways. That can't happen that. very often. No. I don't see how it would. Like a foul ball or a home run that is hit in such a way as to bypass all of the fans and netting to go directly down like the hallway of a stadium and into someone's nachos or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay. I don't really buy that. No, but me either. Still, all of this together though adds up as being very strangely in favor of baseball teams. Yeah. I mean, what did you expect? Though? As if they needed less liability. Yeah. And so I just want to uh, note something before we close out this case. On the Royals website, they have a bio page for Slugger, oh, of course. Oh, my goodness. I... And it has a lot of, like, fun puns about what he likes, like, what his position is like. It's, like, position, king of the jungle, like, right. you know, that sort of thing. But it lists his hobbies as dancing on the dugouts, launching hot dogs, and hanging out with Royals fans, to which I say, read the room. No kidding. What? Whoever does PR for the Royals, um, I'd like a word with you. I wonder if it's their way of pointing to it being a, a long-tenured tradition, saying like, oh, everyone should know about this. That's a fan. It's available on our public website. We say that we throw hot dogs. Slugger throws hot dogs. That's our bit. I cannot. It's weird. Read the room. Read the room. Read this. Read the diamond. So there are people that are listening that might know this. You might know this, considering that we live together. We live together? We are recording in our closet. Yes, we live together. (laughs) I was born and raised in Rhode Island. One of the biggest scandals in my lifetime as a Rhode Islander was the case between the Rhode Island government and a gaming studio called 38 Studios. I wish I had heard about this because when you said it was like the ruining of Rhode Island, I thought you were going to tell me about like Buddy CNC and the like Rhode crime, Island government crime town. Like crime town, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, that was that is a problem. <laughs> and that was like the, I guess, quote, old Rhode Island. That was before my time, really. Well, yeah. Or when I was young, at least. This is more modern than that, and it reflects that. And I need to give some background in order to do this because you need to understand the mindset of Rhode Island people and the collective Rhode Island generally in order to understand how they got themselves into the situation. Tell us about the tiny estate. Okay. Do you know who Kurt Schilling is? No. And ever heard that name? I mean, it maybe sounds a little familiar, but I could not even guess. Tess, I have no idea how he managed to do this, but there is way more crossover than you ever expected. Kurt Schilling was a Major League Baseball pitcher. No! Yeah. <laughs> uh, he he pitched for uh, the Phillies, I think, uh, the Diamondbacks, and then eventually the Red Sox. Okay. And the Red Sox, for Rhode Island people, is like, along with the Patriots, that's it. It's okay. like, that's the biggest part of Rhode Island culture, aside from Dell's Lemonade and Coffee Milk. It's and <laughs> Bubblers. It's the big, oh God, Bubblers. Anyway. We Kurt love Schilling. talking about baseball. Well, let me get to Kurt Schilling. He was the closest thing to a local hero as you could possibly get 
this side of Tom Brady. Was he from Rhode Island? No, but he he brought. They just love Boston. Let me, well, let me explain. Uh, to me, New England generally is somewhat of a front runner market in that there are going to be a lot of people that are like hardcore New England sports fans there. There is just as large a population, if not larger, that only let their fandom show once everybody is successful about it. Growing up, Patriots fans were few and far between, and then Tom Brady rolled around in 2001, and all of a sudden the Patriots were, you know, the most liked NFL team in the league. Right. It's kind of like that. So at this time, when Kurt Schilling first won the World Series with the Red Sox in 2004, they had gone 86-some-odd years between World Series victories. That's the one that my song is about. Exactly right. And I think a lot of Red Sox fans at the time were convinced that they were never, ever going to win a World Series again. So even sniffing that was a huge, huge deal. Part of his, Kurt Schilling's, mythos was that in the AL Championship game of 2004, the year they won the World Series, the Red Sox played the Yankees. And there was something that I'm sure some people are familiar with called the Bloody Sock game. Going into that game, Kurt Schilling had uh, sustained some kind of Achilles injury where his tendon... Uh, sort of released from the uh, sheath around it, effectively. Yeah. And they needed him to pitch because he was the best pitcher on the team. Well, I mean, Pedro Martinez was probably the best. It doesn't matter. He was one of the best pitchers on the team, uh, and they needed him to play against the Yankees. The Yankees were a good team then, as they always are. So to get him back as quick as possible, doctors decided that they were going to do an experimental procedure where they staple the tendon to the skin around it. In order to just hold it into place. God, yeah, because when you uh, tear or like pull away your Achilles, you can't control your ankle. No, not at all. Like it's just flopping. Like you, I've heard gymnastics horror stories. You tear your Achilles and you land, and it doesn't hurt that bad because it tears completely through. And then you try and take a step and just you just tumble can't go because you and, can't do and it. And for a pitcher, I I don't pitch, but. Being able to step off that foot yeah. is huge. Yeah. It's like the central part of your game, aside from, obviously, the throwing motion and all that. So they stapled his tendon to the sheath around it, and even before the game started, he started to bleed through his sock. And it became, <sighs> like, this symbol of, like, heroism and courage, and he ended up, I think, winning that game, and the Red Sox went on to beat the Yankees in the AL Championship, win the World Series in 2004, and bring the first championship back to Boston that they had had in 86, 87 years, something like that. How are you not a Red Sox fan? Break the curse. That's such a good story. Oh, you're really on Kurt Schilling's side right now? Uh Great, because I get to tell you more about him. After he retired... I'll eat my shoe. After he retired from uh, being a pitcher for the Red Sox, Kurt Schilling went on to become famously Islamophobic, xenophobic, racist, transphobic, homophobic, and any other phobic you could think of. Uh, he was me. fired from ESPN for making transphobic remarks on the air. He was sued by several other people for making comments like that. And he basically blamed it on everybody else aside from him saying that he was fired because he was a, quote, conservative. I take literally everything I've ever said back. So six years after the World Series victory in 2010 roundabouts, Schilling had become a uh, sort of a, a investor and stockholder in a video game studios called 38 Studios. Of course he did. Kirchner went so far as to become the chairperson of this company's board of directors. In 2010, at a fundraiser, then-Governor Donald Kachiri, 
met with Kurt Schilling because he was like a Boston and Rhode Island hero, obviously. Of course. And Schilling told Kachiri that in order to move his studio, which they were looking to do, and to complete the financing for their next big project, they were going to look for a loan. And Kuchiri, wanting to bring business to Rhode Island, offered to do that. The problem was that the investment required was... The amount that they needed in a loan? Correct. Okay, so like Rhode Island was going to have to post up a huge amount of money. Take the word huge and amplify it like six okay. times. Oh, Tremendous. Okay. Uh, and... So that's all the background, and this is sort of where the legal part of this begins, because all we've been talking about is baseball things and Rhode Island things, and I can talk about that forever, but it's not part of the podcast, obviously. So after the meeting, Kachiri directed Rhode Island's then Economic Development Council, or the EDC, to basically do whatever it took to get uh, 38 Studios and Schilling to move to Rhode Island. That was priority number one. Don't, okay, listen, hear me out. Yep. I have no interest or understanding of economics. The one thing I do know is that you are always supposed to diversify your portfolio and investing. It seems a little bit dumb to put that all in one video game studio. Granted, I'm wondering if the diversity that they're looking for are different types of projects. So maybe in Kachiri's and Rhode Island's mind, investing in a video game was their attempt to diversify. Doesn't matter. The EDC came up with a huge, 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 immense plan, okay? They created a term sheet, which we can talk about at some point to length. It's not a binding contract. It's just to go over potential terms, effectively the beginning of an offer, not even quite there yet. Right. It's a negotiation. It's a negotiation. And the offer sheet basically stipulated that in order for 38 studios to complete the, the development of their project... Uh, Rhode Island would front them $75 million. I'm sorry. What? This is the tiniest state. What are you doing? Tiniest state. And I did some research at the time, which was 2010, 10 years ago, an average AAA video game title, which is to say the biggest of the biggest, uh, cost about 15 to $30 million to make. Wait, so what did they need all of this money for? I'm assuming they said that the relocation would make up for the difference, but it was never completely covered as to what that what that amount would, would be used for. On the flip side of that, a very successful AAA game, the same size, was making about 60 to $90 million. And those are the most successful ones. So like, okay. for people who care, think of your Gears of War or your Calls of Duty. Okay. They would be making that kind of money. 38 Studios had not made a AAA game title before. Uh, As you can probably guess, that went wrong quick. Like, those terms do not make sense, and you alluded to that. The numbers don't add up. The contract that 38 Studios eventually signed said that they were to pay $1.5 million per year to make up the loan. And in order to cover this, 38 Studios met with Wells Fargo, a bank um, that would cover the bonds given to them by the EDC. So they have a 75-year loan? Effectively, yeah. God, that also doesn't seem wise. No, it's not. And and I mentioned bonds just now, and this is important to delineate here. Rhode Island didn't just give them $75 million worth of cash. Right, of course. They issued them state bonds, which are effective. They're securities. Yeah. And it basically is a certificate saying you can cash this in for X amount of money when when needed. Right. So the line of credit. And you can do that through whoever is covering the bonds at the time. 
So Wells Fargo was volunteering to cover the bonds as needed as so long as they were guaranteed by the state of Rhode Island. And right. that's important. So they're like case. underwriting. Exactly. Yeah. They are a key cog to this because okay. they're effectively the middleman for the money being passed between the two parties. And also Wells Fargo does not have a great track history no. either. So and this does not help. Trust me. Ooh, baby. At this time, when they were starting to authorize the issuance of the bonds and things like that, one member of the EDC wrote a report talking about how sheerly stupid this loan would be. It didn't make any sense. The numbers didn't add up. There was no reason to do this. Uh, the commission as a whole ignored the report. Of course they did. Put it out of their minds. Uh, Shortly after the issuance of bonds were authorized, 38 studios sought other investors to make up the small amount of difference that they said they needed. They fell short of that. So they didn't have enough money to complete the project and do the relocation, even with the amount that they tried to get from Rhode Island. For some reason, 38 studios decided not to tell the EDC about the shortfall and EDC relied on that uh, assertion by them that they were going to be okay and paid out the bonds effectively gave them all the money that they needed through through Wells Fargo they paid out approximately 50 million dollars within the next year and a half and the plan was that the remaining 25 million were going to come in the form of other securities insurance guarantees etc some other abstract money down the line we're still Two years later, 38 Studios ran out of money, failed to complete the project that they were invested in by Rhode Island, and declared bankruptcy, subsequently defaulting on their loan. Where do you spend $75 million? That's a huge part of the problem. I think they really did try to develop the game, but someone somewhere screwed something up or skimmed money off the top because that money effectively disappeared. Like, so like they don't they can't like account for it. It was it wasn't talked about in this case. I think there are subsequent cases where they go through joint and several liability. They figure out where the money tried to go, whether or not it was Wells Fargo's fault, whatever it was. All I know is that that money wasn't enough to cover what they were whatever they were trying to do, and they defaulted because of it. So after this, the EDC basically sued fourteen different defendants, Schilling. 38 Studios, Wells Fargo, people that made misrepresentations, um, individual employees, that kind of thing. As you do. Yeah. Make sure you get everyone in there. Exactly right. Um, Claims ranged from fraud to breach of fiduciary duty, misrepresentation, that kind of thing. The two primary defenses... whole Bizorgs class. (laughs) Yeah. The two primary defenses by the various defendants here were two simple legal concepts, realistically. And they're very interesting because they kind of have a point here. The first one is standing. The second one is ripeness. And they seem so simple in the way that they're phrased. It almost seems like it wouldn't be enough, right? But I'm going to play out the logic for you because I thought this was interesting. According to 38 Studios, no actual injury ever occurred. Why? To them, the EDC, the party bringing the lawsuit, and by extension Rhode Island, were voluntary participants in this. They decided from the very get-go that lending that money was going to come with inherent risk. They knew that going into it, so the fact that they failed was already calculated, figured into the the negotiations, and therefore nothing happened. Me telling landlords that we don't owe them rent? Yeah, well, I hope it never comes to that, (laughs) and I'm definitely not going to publish that. (laughs) Um, To them, the only way for Rhode Island to seek relief in this scenario would be to sue the EDC 
rather than 38 studios because they were the intermediary. They were the, 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 the conduit between the taxpayer, the people footing the actual bill, and the game studio. EDC was the one screw, screwing things up because they miscalculated the risk. Let me know why this makes sense to me. I, well, it gets better. That's not there, even the best one. The lawyer that they hired for this, that's where all the money went. He is a phenomenal lawyer. Yeah. That is the most counterintuitive argument generally, but it fits. explaining it, it fits perfectly. Right. Like I'm sitting here like nodding like, yeah. Yeah. The second part of this, which I think is even more clever, is that because the EDC only authorized the granting of state bonds, they themselves are not the aggrieved party. They simply aren't the ones who sustained economic damage. Instead, the investors, the people who held the bonds, or the taxpayers, the one who footed the bill, would be the ones who have to bring the, the actual suit. Insane. Because the EDC, again, along with Wells Fargo, just the intermediary. They didn't actually lose any money, even though they kind of did, because the people that paid this bill, the people that had to pay taxes to the economy, were the state taxpayers, the Rhode Island legislature, that kind of thing. So they would need to be the ones to bring the lawsuit. The EDC had no standing in this case. This is just so evil. It's very evil. smart. Like, it is like, yeah, literally like abusing the capitalist system and the judicial system in place that holds up the capitalist system for your own, like, I mean, not profit, but avoidance of being accountable, except I can't even argue with it because clearly it makes complete sense that you would argue that. They know how to use the legal system as evil as it is. Yeah. Finally. This is how they summed up the defense's legal arguments here. They basically said the only way the EDC would be forced to pay that money that they owed would be if the state's legislator decided to pay the bondholders back, meaning the state has one of two options. Either the legislature doesn't pay the bondholders back and the EDC had no standing to bring the claim, no economic harm, or the legislature does move to pay the bondholders back, which would hold the EDC liable and not 38 studios because they would have been the ones to shirk risk or miscalculate the risk when they did it. 38 studios, Kurt Schilling and the other 14 defendants at this point are basically saying, we were innocent parties in all of this. We just screwed up our actual development. It's their fault that the economic harm came to Rhode Island's economy. In theory... Yeah, I yeah, I, it's 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 incredible. It's a it's such an evil, intelligent legal argument, and yeah. at the end of things, the court agrees with them. Yeah, I mean that's I if I were on that court, I would literally be like, I hate myself for writing this, but I'm stuck. Like, what else would you do? What else would you do? Like, I literally I cannot think of a way to refute those arguments. It's in, like I don't think it's as intuitive to people who are just reading this case, and I think a lot of Rhode Islanders still harbor resentment for 38 Studios, as you should. Yeah. But they don't realize that there was a weird chain of command when it came to doling out the bonds and the money from the Rhode Island economy. So it's like, it, it's a very complicated situation. Well, yeah, it's they exploited a flaw in the legal system in the law they exploited it flaw is one word i would say feature feature yeah okay that's true they exploited a feature of the legal system yeah and that's evil but it's legal after all is said and done 
the court found that the EDC didn't sustain $75 million worth of damages. The economic loss went through the state and private bondholders, so they would have to bring the case, basically. 38 studios didn't get uh, off the hook altogether, though. Right. The, the court found that the EDC could recover based on liability owed to the General Assembly, uh, meaning the people holding, like the stockholders and the legislature and its constituents, as well as damage to the EDC's reputation, as, as well as fees, salaries, legal fees, that kind of thing. Yeah, in other words, in other words, the court preserved EDC's ability to file a later claim for other damages or figuring out who they should actually allocate those seventy-five million dollars worth of damages to. But they said that these defendants, in this fashion, weren't liable. It effectively left the Rhode Island economy with somewhere between a fifty and seventy-five million dollar hole. That is insane to me. Yeah, and that I- a corporation can just come in and exploit the economy of an entire devastate it yeah i grew up thinking about this case pretty frequently we you know i'd talk with my friends about it or talk with my parents about it obviously not having the same legal education as i do now and i never quite understood what the heck was going on i still barely do but this it blows my mind like this is the most evil and i don't know legal argument that you could make yeah and it's just like it al- the legal system allows for that. Capitalism allows for that. Encourages it. Encourages it. Oh. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to quickly cover litigation that happened after that because I, I didn't do a lot of research into this, but it's interesting and it's probably necessary to make people feel a little bit better about it. Several years after uh, this case occurred, the SEC began an investigation into Wells Fargo, the people that covered the bonds. Oh, yeah. Uh, and as well as the Rhode Island Commerce Corporation, which I didn't see in the original opinion, but it was mentioned later on. So I, I have to imagine it was like a secondary bond issuer or something like that uh, for securities fraud, both of them. Namely, they basically said the companies failed to disclose that the loan from the EDC itself wasn't enough to cover the funding, which led to the reliance on it, which eventually led to the defaulting on the loan later on. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, about five years after the start of the investigation, both companies settled. Wells Fargo settled for an undisclosed amount, as they are wont to do, uh, but the RICC settled for $50,000. I can't even describe how minimal that is compared to the harm. I'm, I was trying to do the math on this. I'm pretty sure it's like 0.002% of the harm. Great. Or something like that. I could be completely wrong about that. Math is not my strong suit. It is a fraction of a percent. would have been $750,000. A criminal investigation was started as well against the studio, but nothing actually ever came of it. Uh, Subsequent civil suits occurred against the individual defendants, a bunch of them of the 14. 38 Studios itself was actually dropped because it's a corporation. You can't really... It was hard to find fault in the collective corporation, but a lot of... And they're bankrupt, so you don't even want to... That's true. You don't want the money. You want to get at the individual people's money because right. you know they protected their In, money. including kurt schilling who yeah. has made an absolute uh mother load of cash in his yeah, baseball sure. career so eventually those civil suits resulted in settlements about of about 61 million dollars um, not bad so the right people did the right suit right it left rhode island with a total bill of about 28 million dollars to be footed by taxpayers which itself is ridiculous yeah that's still absurd um 
unfortunately, because of the nature of the suit, of the civil suits themselves, it's unlikely Rhode Island will see much of, if any, of that $61 million in settlements. So, realistically, they still have a $75 million deficit to make up. So it's still, like, private investors and stuff that reclaimed yeah. what they'd invested. And I don't know what Kurt Schilling's private monetary life is like these days, um, but there's no way he's going to be able to fork over $50 million worth of assets or cash to give to Rhode Island. So at some point, they're just going to be like, I don't have any more money to give. Sorry. And if that's $4 million or $40 million, it's not going to be enough. Uh, I Last time I checked, and I don't have this written down or anything, um, but last time I checked, Gina Raimundo, who's the Rhode Island governor now, um, recently filed a lawsuit to uncover the grand jury instructions in this case just to see what was what, uh, as well as some of the deliberation um, documents. And the court denied her. Oh, no. Yeah, so those are sealed in in favor of secrecy. Uh, So, yeah, so I think this is dead in the water at this point. Yeah, it kind of seems like it. Just lost cash. Yeah, just lost cash, and then they're like, well, yeah, we'll just bury it even further. Moral of the story is the Red Sox suck. Thank you. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. And maybe everyone stops standing capitalism. Capitalism. The Red Sox are capitalism of the MLB. Boom. I said it. Anyway, thanks. That's it for this week, everyone. A little bit of housekeeping before we get to the social media stuff. I first want to thank my friend Ryan, who sent us a pop filter for this mic. Um, I'm learning how to edit on the fly, as I've said. I've got to be a thousand times now. Um, but the hardest part of that so far has been editing out and filtering P's and B's, which is a pain. Uh, this pop filter works wonders for that, so it's going to be a lot easier editing that. Now, if only I had a computer that didn't drop out every 25 minutes, that would be fantastic. So thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Also, Tess and I are going to be starting bar prep going forward, which I'm sure some people know and others have heard is effectively a full-time job, sometimes exceeding 40 hours of study a week. It's going to be a hell of a lot of work. For that reason, the podcast is potentially, probably, shifting over to a bi-weekly schedule, um, perhaps even more than that, depending on how much work we can get done during the week and how much research we can do for the actual podcast. I don't know what it's going to be, and I would just, if I were you, stay tuned for updates. In the meantime, understand that you might not be getting a new episode every single week. I appreciate patience in that regard. As much of a pain in the ass as bar prep is going to be, it's obviously necessary. Um, It's going to have to take precedent for a little while, and hopefully at some point down the line we can get back to doing one every week. Who knows? But I'll keep you posted as we find out. Tess, roll the credits. You can follow us on Instagram at Disorder in the Court Pod or on Twitter at Disorder Pod, or you can just email us at Disorder in the Court Pod at gmail.com. If you have any comments, case suggestions, especially case suggestions, it's getting harder to like think of these off the top of our heads. Um, and, or if you just want to share anything. And then I also want to put a quick plug in here keep donating to black lives matter and keep supporting the movement keep protesting if you can keep educating yourself keep having those conversations with your family and your friends 
and let me know if we can help or if there's a cause that um, you want us to draw attention to or donate to. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.